A couple of announcements before we enter in the time of the word. Uh, Wednesday night, uh, the table talk will be canceled this week, but there is a a, um, a time that the that the Bo and the the student leaders are preparing for a celebration for the seniors in that group who are going to be outgoing and graduating here uh, shortly in a month or so time, and so they're going to have a, a time where they're going to get up and and have a chance to share some of their experiences and and as well as hearing from parents and leaders and things like that. And uh, we want to invite the whole church to come and participate in that by by being witness to it. And so if you have any questions about that or anything like that, talk to Bill. I believe it starts at 630, 630. Um, and then uh, so that's this Wednesday night. Uh, table talk will continue uh, the the week after. Um, one more announcement is uh, on May 21st, we'll be having a uh, another men's luncheon, and uh, the purpose of this one will be to cover primarily two things. Uh, it'll be to cover some of the things we, we covered in the first one, but in, in more depth. Number one being uh, mortifying sin to death in your life, and number two it will be primarily giving guidance, resources, and examples of family worship. And so to help um, whether you are um, uh, taking care of, of your parents in, in your household, whether you are married without children or married and your children are out of the house, or whether you have a whole house full of creatures, is, is to kind of go over the necessity um, and and the uh, the need for for the the husbands to to lead their homes in this way. So it'll be a challenging and encouraging time. Uh, email will go out about that, and uh, we'll somehow. I'm I'm sure you guys will want to eat food or something. So we'll we'll figure that out as well. And now we are in the gospel according to Matthew. We are finishing chapter 16 this morning. I promise. And as we go into 16. One thing uh, I want you to, to, to maybe hold before you is, is as Jesus is approaching Jerusalem uh, and his destined time at the cross, uh, that in eternity past, the triune God had, had, had long before any of us were created um, in his good pleasure, was marching towards um, the height of shame and and injustice uh, on behalf of his people. And, and if you are in Christ, it was for you. And as he is making his way, he's now talking to his disciples more and more about what is a epochal difference, that that time itself is about to change. History itself in the way that that they were going to look at the world and the world was going to um, be moving is about to change in its entirety so he begins to really not just prepare his disciples for his time when he will no longer be with him he's beginning to really talk about this time period between the resurrection and his return and so he's not just challenging his disciples on teaching anymore and rebuking them for not understanding parables and things like this. 
He's preparing them for this time, this time between the resurrection and his return. So we will read the entirety of chapter 16 this morning in our reading. After I finish the reading, I'll give you the opportunity to pray silently that the Holy Spirit would open your heart and your mind to the truth of the word. Chapter 16 from the Gospel according to Matthew. And the Pharisees and the Sadducees came, and to test him, they asked him to show them a sign from heaven. He answered them, When is evening, you say, it will be fair weather, for the sky is red. And in the morning, it will be stormy day today, for the sky is red and threatening. You know how to interpret the appearance of the sky, but you cannot interpret the sign of the times. An evil and adulterous generation seeks for a sign, but no sign will be given to it except the sign of Jonah. So he left them and departed. When the disciples reached the other side, they had forgotten to bring any bread. Jesus said to them, Watch and beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and the Sadducees. And they began discussing it among themselves, saying, We brought no bread. But Jesus, aware of this, said, O you of little faith, why are you discussing amongst yourselves the fact that you have no bread? Do you not yet perceive Do you not remember the five loaves for the 5,000 and how many baskets you gathered? Or the seven loaves for the 4,000 and how many baskets you gathered? How is it that you fail to understand that I did not speak about bread? Beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and the Sadducees. Then they understood that he did not tell them to beware of the leaven of the bread, but of the teaching of the Pharisees and the Sadducees. Now, when Jesus came into the district of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, who do people say that the Son of Man is? And they said, some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, others Jeremiah, or one of the prophets. He said to them, but who do you say that I am? Simon Peter replied, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus answered him, blessed are you, Simon Barjona. For flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. And I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Then he strictly charged the disciples to tell no one that he was the Christ. From that time, Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and on the third day be raised. Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him, saying, Far be it from you, Lord, this shall never happen to you. But he turned and said to Peter, Get behind me, Satan. You are a hindrance to me, for you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. Then Jesus told his disciples, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. For what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and forfeits his soul? Or what shall a man give in return for his soul? For the Son of Man is going to come with his angels in the glory of his Father, and then he will repay each person according to what he has done. Truly, I say to you, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the Son of Man coming in his kingdom. 
This is the word of God. Please take this time to pray. Heavenly Father, your church comes to celebrate the resurrection of Jesus Christ through prayer, both individual and corporate, through fellowship of the saints, loving relationships that are celebrated, through our praises, through understanding the truth of who you are and what you've done, we offer song back to you as a proper and appropriate response to the moving of our affections by the Holy Spirit that produces praise in the hearts of your people. And Lord, we come by the power of the Holy Spirit, regenerated, indwelled by the Spirit, given the ability to understand your holy and true word, given the strength and the power finally to fight against that great enemy, sin, that still inhabits our bodies. And now, Lord, we come to the time of the ministry of the word. And Lord, we pray that through the power of the Holy Spirit, that you would illuminate the minds and the hearts of your people. That you would continue to sanctify us through your word. That we would be made to new understanding and given new understanding to the the many things in our lives that we replace you with. Lord, our innate selfishness, our ability to almost habitually put ourselves first. Lord, renew the hearts of your people Turn our eyes to you, not just as individuals, but as a corporate body that is in union with one another through the Holy Spirit. Lord, now we ask that you also, in your mercy, in your sovereign plan, if there are those here who are not of the faith, God, that you have determined this time that through the hearing of your word and the regeneration of their hearts by the Holy Spirit, they would come to a saving faith in the gospel of Jesus Christ. Made new creations, hearts of stone made hearts of flesh, and that the power of your gospel would be shown and made manifest in their lives to the glory of your name. Now we pray all this time for your glory, for the edification of your people, for the conviction of those in unbelief. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.
Every time the beginning of a school year, kids are generally excited, whether they're going to school or they're at home school or a university model. There are certain aspects of it that excite them. Not all things. It takes, I don't know, a week for that to wear off. And then they go, when is it over? Summertime. And the parents are like, well, summer's coming. It's coming soon. You make plans. And then before you know it, it's May. Kids are going to be out of school soon. All these things are ramping up. It seemed suddenly that the year disappeared. And things are moving quicker than you anticipated. You realize how far behind on your planning you are. And all these other things in life have come along. You're like, man, that happened really fast. Well, now imagine being these men following Jesus. For two and three quarters or seven-eighths years, it has been following, listening, pursuing him, imagining often, more often than not, that this one you follow is eventually going to sit on the throne of David in Israel, cast out the Romans, and allow Israel to live in peace. And then his descendants will take the throne And that will continue. And instead, what you've just been told, no, when I'm going to Jerusalem, it won't be to sit on a throne. I'm going to Jerusalem to be shamed, humiliated, beaten, spit on, and murdered. And then instead of being raised up in triumph, I'll be raised up in shame and the death of a criminal. Things were coming at the disciples pretty quickly. It kind of explains Peter's reaction, although he had the insight that God gave him that this was Messiah, not the full understanding of what that was actually going to look like. And so as Jesus has portrayed these truths earlier in this chapter, and he's now letting these disciples know And in every aspect, talking about this is moving quickly, the first part of 17 is the transfiguration. Everything is now accelerated to the point of this end thing that's going to happen. This event that what I called epochal in the introduction was to say that history, all of history, has been waiting for this event, unbeknownst to fallen man. This moment, long awaited for, where the power of sin and death is dealt with. And yet in a manner that is shockingly unexpected by these disciples. So Jesus is strengthening while challenging his disciples. And so when we get into this dialogue that we began last week with the carrying of the cross and this imagery of following Jesus... This is a continuation, as one author says, this is not to give his followers this idea of doom and gloom. And anyone and everyone who calls on the name of Jesus is going to be killed in a criminal's death, although some certainly will and still are to this day. He's pointing them to the reality of what it means to contend or consider and, and move forward as one who's actually following Messiah. And it goes beyond 
just, I'm going to say what he says. I'm going to walk like he walks. Jesus earlier in this book will, and in the other gospel accounts in the synoptics, will use imagery like the idea of hating father and mother. The idea of leaving everything, selling all that you have and following him. Discipleship wasn't a come make some money easier this way than in your former job. No, this was a a changing of your entire existence. And so just as he's pointing them towards this new life, he's letting them know that there is going to have to be, in order for there to be this new life, this new way of living, this way of following Messiah, there has to be a death that precedes it. And that is the old life. This brings this conversation again. This was, if you remember, seven years ago when we were in chapter 10. This is actually similar language. If you read Matthew 10, 34 through 39, he uses the same language of carrying your cross. He uses the same, what is an allusion actually to Psalm 49 when he talks about um, how will a man live and things like that and how will he purchase his own soul back. This is, this is a, a returning to this same argument that Jesus has had earlier with his disciples. And so it's also mentioned in Mark 8.35, Luke 9.24, and as well as in Luke 17. So this wasn't a new teaching. This was something that he had brought up prior to everything he's, te- he's done now and is leading them to. And now he brings it again in 25. For whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. For what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and forfeits his soul? Or what shall a man give in return for his soul? Now one of the things to take note of here, the language that used every time the word life or soul is used, it's the same Greek word. It's where we get the word we get psych from. If you were a child of the 90s, that doesn't mean what it means today. So following this imagery of denying oneself or putting to death oneself, who would save his life? Naturally flowing after who would deny himself or put to death himself? The one who would save his life is the one who will lose it. And again, this isn't the message of you need to go die. But it certainly, at the very least, reckons with the disciple that that is a possibility. It is a possibility, even in the West, in the 20th century today, you could die for your faith. It might not be a political program against Christians. It could be a person who just hates Christians. We've seen that over the last few decades. We often think of a war in the East, that happens all the time. Well, it does. People are laid out in beaches. Over 100 people murdered. Why? They were meeting on the Lord's Day in a country where that's not legal. In other countries, 
Christians' children are taken from them, and they never see them again because they're put in re-education camps. They have no rights. They're told that's the penalty for meeting and gathering together and calling on the name of Christ. So certainly the disciple of Jesus Christ in the 21st century has to reckon with the idea that you could lose your life. You could have terrible things done to you for one reason. You believe that man is sinful, and you believe that God has made a way for a sinful man to be reconciled to God through a covenant in the blood of Jesus Christ. And as you are a part of that, you also believe that there are ethical truths that have to be lived out by God's people, and not just that. You feel the need to point out injustice in your realm of where you live and the world at large. That has been the testimony of the church since the first century. In first century Rome, there were close to a dozen ways that you could legally put a newborn child to death. Did you know that? The most common way was simply for the father to look at the child and determine that the child had some type of defect or seemed weak, and the father would take the child and put them in a specific place in a town center where the child would be left to the elements, either to die to those elements or for wild animals. The answer of the early church was to anticipate and know when the children were going to be left in the church and the people who were a part of the church would take the children and raise them. The church has always been about ethical demands of the Christian men and women that make up the church. And it stands outside the norm of the society that you live in. And that can lead to persecution and it can lead to your death. And the disciples needed to know, these first century disciples needed to know, that's a possibility. As a Greek general uh, in uh, prior to the time of Christ noted, the soldier who most easily reconciles with himself that he's probably going to die in battle will fight in such a way that he will more than likely live. There's an idea behind understanding the discipline and the reckoning of yourself like calling on the name of Christ, maybe not at the most, but the possibility that I could lose my life I could lose my children, I could lose my job, I can lose my reputation for one reason. And it's not just because you say, I'm Christian, it's because you live and speak in a manner that shows that that's true. That's what the fallen world hates. The man and woman who says, I'm a Christian, and just lives like everyone else around them, no one even cares about that. That's, that they, actually, that's preferable to them. Look at that hypocrite. But the Christian man and woman who lives in such a way that understands these ethical demands of following Christ, the world hates, just as they hated Jesus. So, these disciples needed to know, this is a possibility. And it becomes a reality for almost every one of them. And for many who will follow them throughout the history of the church. 
but it's not the only thing that Jesus is teaching. What he's teaching here that ties into with this idea of denying self in 24 and taking up a cross and following me, if you're someone who's looking to save his life, you're going to lose it. And he goes into this idea and the word, as I mentioned, that he's using is really this idea of inner person or how it's translated life or soul. What really makes up man. If you're seeking to save that. You're going to lose it. Whoever loses life for my sake will find it. There's many a well-meaning Christian man and woman who become simply well-meaning cowards. In the early church, there were an entire group who were known for one thing. Taxation would stop. They'd regain their property. They'd have all these things come back to them if they would only deny that they were Christian. And the thinking in their mind was, I can deny it by my voice and not deny it in my heart, get my stuff back, and everything will be okay. And then there's over two centuries of accounts of everything not being okay. You see, this idea of putting yourself to death or reckoning Yourself as dead to the old and alive in the new is the whole idea of this new creation that has not been introduced. It's coming, is what Jesus is telling his disciples. You're going to die and come back, and you're going to be a different life. He's talking about Pentecost. He's talking about salvation and indwelling of the Spirit. In preparing him for that age that's coming, that age between his resurrection, the giving of the Spirit, and his return in victory. So he's not just telling them, be prepared to die, because you might, and they were, and they will. He's telling them that everything you define as what it is to be you needs to die. You need to reckon it as dead. Everything that comes Here, this is how I define myself. This is what I love in life. Hobbies. My job. My children. My spouse. My rocking chair. Whatever it might be. I love these things. These things are what give me comfort. Or what I love. Or what is the best part of my day. All those things, yes, including your children, including your spouse. All those things have to be reckoned as dead compared to following the master. Christ has to be preeminent in your life. Want to see where the struggles in marriages are? When one or both spouses are making other things preeminent in their life. And both of you aren't coming together in full agreement and dialogue dialogue that Christ is preeminent, not just in our lives, in our marriage, 
and making your children understand, loving them with the depths that you can't comprehend, but that love is as nothing compared to the love I have for God. You will have a strengthened marriage. You will have children that look at their mothers and fathers and say the most important thing about my mothers and father in their life is their love and adoration of Christ. Everything about the human life was about to change. In the life of the Jew in the first century, a rabbi and a disciple's relationship could not go that far. They were supposed to follow their rabbi or teacher, but they even had special provisions in their contracts where something happened with their family. They could leave for a time to take care of whatever needed to be taken care of with their family and then come back and pick up their apprenticeship again. Jesus is changing the dynamic and saying, no, it all has to be as you hate it. It all has to be as dead to you. And that sounds harsh to our ears. But he's showing them the recognition of, of this isn't some Jewish scholar that you're following. This is the creator of the universe. This is the redeemer. This is the one while the disciples were talking to him and he's not, they're not getting it fully yet who is the entire time they, they've been with him living in a type of humiliation they can never understand because they're not God lowering themselves to wear flesh. His love and the magnitude of his love is the fact that we reflect on what God actually did for his people. The incarnation, the humiliation, the shame And what do we see throughout the Gospels? In a moment, he could have called angels to him to defend him. In a moment, he could have uncreated anyone who was there opposing him. And in all of it, though, a destiny awaited the second person of the Trinity from eternity past, and he never wavered. He never fell to temptation, though he was tempted in every way for you and me. Our reckoning everything else as less than that. Our reckoning everything else as less than attempting in our meager abilities to love God in response to that. That's what he's calling them to. Everything else has to be reckoned as dead and following Messiah. So in order to save your life, you will lose it. And when you lose his life or your life for my sake, you're going to find it. For what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and forfeits his soul? Or what shall a man give in return for his soul? 26 is a paraphrase of Psalm 49, 7 through 9, where redemptive words are used. It's, it's in essence asking, how is a man going to purchase back his own soul? How will a man redeem his own soul? And the imagery is used elsewhere in, in time of, or the allusion to this particular psalm is used in some of the parables about people storing up things. And then being called account that you're going to die this day. 
And none of those things you stored matter anymore. Someone else will take them. You did it for nothing. Pursuit. Frivolity. Shallowness. Vapid living. Entertaining ourselves to death. Even those in Christ, barely recognizable as people who are actually pursuing Him. Filling our minds and our thoughts and our time wasted. Well, all of you on your phones, not me. No, um, We've come upside down in the way we read this. In the way we live this. Whatever comfort I may find. Will save me. Whatever distraction. I can get. Is what saves me. Whatever time spent. Not in serious thought. Contemplation or prayer. Is what's best for me in life. That's our culture. That's the age we live in. Don't be fooled. Distraction, entertainment, and all these things that are like drugs to us are distracting you from this life. This life of everything, every single thing in your life is subservient to the love you bear God in Christ. Reckoning yourselves as one who has died to self and by the power of the Spirit been given new life in Christ Why? To prepare you to be heralds of the king during this change in history that we live in between the time of his resurrection and ascension and the giving of the spirit and the church and until the time that he returns. He's given his disciples a view of this, a piece of this, and he's calling all who read this in the church to take heed to it. Nothing profits a man who gains the world if he forfeits his soul. Nothing profits a man or woman who is, is seeking to save their own life. They need, to, they need to put to death their old life. Why? For the Son of Man is going to come with his angels in the glory of his Father, and then he will repay each person according to what he has done. Understand this phrase. Jesus is telling them, live unlike anyone else in the world lives. That's what you're going to have to do. When I am gone, and in John, he goes in much greater detail, he's going to send the helper. And when the helper comes, you're going to have to live like no men and women have ever lived in the history of the world. Because you're going to be empowered by God, the Holy Spirit. You have the ability to do what no one's been able to do since the fall of man. Completely fight against sin by the power of God. And when you do it, you're also going to share how you're able to do it with those who don't have it. You're going to share with the unbelievers in the world of every tribe, nation, and tongue that you have been redeemed out of your sinful place, out of your destined place in hell and separation by the power of God, by God himself and the person and the works of Jesus Christ. And through all of that, 
We have a new life. Not here and now. We're all going to die. Here and now we strive. Here and now we persevere by the power of the Spirit in the face of a sinful world. But the world to come. The world to come, we are citizens. It's our rightful place. It's the place that is waiting for us. So in this epochal change, this time in history, Jesus is finally letting his disciples know. As much as he's talked about the kingdom for 15 chapters, he's letting them know. This is why you die to self, reckon yourself dead, and follow me. We pray it all the time, right? God, let me be more like Christ. God, let me walk more like Christ. Let me do more like Christ. Jesus is saying, this is why. It's because the here and now is, takes this long. In the here and now, you're called to be a herald to the king. Point everyone back to Christ, not to yourself. But people will look at your life and see what we talked about earlier. Is their life look any different than mine? Does their life, do they act any different? Do they speak any different? Do they te- treat their spouses any different? Their children, their neighbors? Well, why is that? Why are they so different? It's because, it's because I died. My old self died on the cross when Christ took the penalty of my sin. And I was renewed by the Spirit and sealed in Him along with everyone else who calls on His name. And now as I live, I don't live and look at all this around me and go, boy, this sure is nice. Boy, I'm distracted. Boy, I can't wait to do this. I can't wait to do this. No, I live in such a manner to go. It's all because I have a future citizenship. There's a world coming where God is going to remake everything. He's going to judge those. He's going to judge the unbelievers, the reprobate, and he's going to separate them out. They'll have no part in this new creation, but I have a part. Not because I'm great, because God chose me and God did all this work But that's been the secret of the church from the beginning. The best times in the history of the church have been identified by a people who were looking at another land. Taking care of the here and now. Being responsible. But always in mind that they were pilgrims. They were aliens, sojourners, traveling a foreign, hostile land, and one day they were going to make it home. And so when Jesus tells his disciples, the Son of Man is going to come with his angels and the glory of his Father and repay each person according to what is done, he's giving them a picture, not of the crucifixion now, but of his return. So talking about things coming fast, the disciples are like, wait, you're going to die? And then his response is, yeah, but I'm coming back. And until such a time, you have to die to yourself. You have to reckon yourself as as alien sojourners, hostile to the world because the world hates me. It's going to hate you if you 
look and sound like me. But that's okay. I'm the king. And this is all mine. And this last piece. Seemingly confusing to you, to, to many, but it isn't. That sounded arrogant. Sorry. Truly I say to you, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the Son of Man coming in his kingdom. One of the things you're going to see about the kingdom preaching of Jesus as it's come throughout here, it's progressing throughout. Where you can take that piece as he's talking about the Son of Man coming in his glory. He's talking about the final eschaton, the time when Christ returns in judgment. And when in 28, say to you, there are some standing here will not taste death. Almost everyone will say, Jesus hasn't come back yet. Are there some immortal apostles out there somewhere who have not died yet? No. Much like all of this gospel, there's oftentimes, many times, where Jesus is talking about seeing a picture of something here and now, and the fullness of it will be seen at this time he's previously stated of his return. So not seeing death until they see him in his glory What's the next chapter in the Bible? He's going to take three up to a mountaintop, show him his glory. Is that his return? No. Are they getting to share in a piece of really understanding who Jesus is and his magnificence and his glory? Yes. Why? Because he's concerned about his disciples being confident in who they are. Having security in understanding that God keeps his promises and that the covenant he's making with them that they're going to see be made in the blood of Christ is of the utmost trustworthiness. I am the Messiah. Don't tell anyone. I'm going to die. You also need to die to yourself, but that's okay because I'm coming back and I'm coming back in power. And then to show you, the next thing I'm going to do is show you a sliver of who I am. As we move forward, we see more and more of Christ and who he is. As disciples of Jesus Christ, as followers of Jesus Christ, who are on the road of sanctification, meaning you are being made more and more into the image of Christ through the power of the Spirit and through you actively by the power of the Spirit, fleeing temptation, putting sin to death in your life and pursuing Him, not for the exercise of it, because as a reciprocal work of the love you hold to Him with the knowledge of your inheritance. I challenge you, put to death the things in your life that are idols. That can include the vulgar, and that can include the beautiful. But if there are things that you idolize above Christ, You have to knock those down. All of them. Because he is Lord. 
He is king. And the king of the universe saw something in you before you were created that was going to bring about his glory. And so he bestowed his love on you by giving his blood for you. Put to death anything that hinders your walk with him. Let's pray. Father, as we continue the gospel according to Matthew, I pray we are confronted by what the life of a disciple really looks like. Strengthen us, God, in our our lives. Give us the fellowship of the saints. Give us deep and strong friendships where we challenge one another. Ask each other about our prayer lives. Ask each other about our, our study and our time in the word. Challenge each other when it comes to our marriages, our parenting. Doing so in love and graciousness. You've given us each other in this local assembly in order as a group to glorify your name. So may you purify this assembly, Lord, through the Spirit. May we all knock down our idols, break them, and walk away from them. Lord, keep our eyes on Christ, who calls us to put to death ourselves, and have our eyes set in the midst of persevering in a fallen world, to the fact that our Redeemer, our God, our King, will return one day, create a new heavens and a new earth, resurrect and unite holy spirits to holy bodies in which we will be citizens of His kingdom forever. Empower us with these truths, God, that we might live lives that glorify you. In Christ's name, amen.